Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <sighs> Sue and I did have a great time at camp. We were both working every morning and evening, she on the keyboard and me speaking, but we had, uh, we had uh, the blessing of having the kids around and having a daughter who's a professional photographer doesn't hurt either. And uh, so, yeah, all the kids were there at one time or another, and none of them stayed in our cabin. <laughs> when, when we think of joy, of happiness, we think of something like this. Being together with your family, being outside in the beautiful weather, having a great time. And that, that's a joyful thing. It's a happy thing. It's a, it's a, it's a privileged thing. And uh, as I think about it, I think about it even as a, uh, um, a, a, a side blessing of doing the ministry. The reason that Raul and Stephanie and Sue and I were there was to do the Lord's work. And the Lord just brought the rest of our family around too. And so there's a blessing that goes with. And, and that's what we think of when we think of joy. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, there's a, there's a different kind of joy or a different aspect to joy that I'd like to challenge you with. And it's the kind of joy that Jesus had when Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of, of God. When we think of joy, we think of something that's completely joyful and happy. We don't think of something like the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's an, there's an element of joy that I believe Christ had that, that we ought to have as well. And, and it's the joy of what he accomplished. We don't come to this table and rejoice in his sufferings. We remember his suffering, but we aren't happy that he had to suffer. If anything, we're sad that he had to suffer because he had to suffer for us. But he gave us this, this ritual of eating the bread and drinking the cup and remembering him because of the joy not because of the suffering. He wanted us to think about the things that were accomplished and him and his love for us. Yes, we remember his suffering, but we remember it all the way through to what it accomplished. And I want to try and do that today from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the familiar verses, verse 23 through 29. Um, excuse me, 20, not 23. Um, let's drop down to, uh, oh, I've got the wrong book open. That's my problem. 2 Corinthians. Hmm. Yes, there we go. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
And I believe if we were to, to understand the joy that was in the Lord's heart, the first element of that joy would be this right here. The joy of a memorial and not a sacrament. This, this activity that we're about to participate in by many people in the Christian world is called a sacrament. And the word sacrament is based in the word sacred, and it gives the meaning of getting something spiritual in some tangible fashion from these elements. Jesus, on the other hand, said, this is to be something you do to remember me. It is a memorial. There is a very large worldwide church which declares that eating this bread and drinking this juice is the way that the life of Christ is dispensed to us. In other words, in some fashion, when we would partake of this, we actually get the life of Christ. We get salvation coming into us. And there are variations on that in, in several uh, of large denominations. But the Lord never expressed or implied that eating this bread and drinking this juice was something you could do to receive the salvation that he suffered to obtain. And I think this is really made clear in a familiar verses like this from Ephesians. By grace you have been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That large worldwide church teaches, oh yes, salvation is free, it is a gift of God, but you have to work to earn the grace of God. The blessing that Jesus put into this supper is that no, you do not have to work to earn God's grace. You do not have to receive this in some way to tangibly take Christ's body into you. You don't maintain your status in Christ by receiving these elements. You don't get more saved by taking these elements. I had a discussion this week with a friend who's a member of that very large worldwide church. And I believe he truly knows Christ as his Savior. And I see him occasionally at a, a restaurant in town with golden arches. <laughs> the ham's not a mystery. <laughs> And I go there for breakfast, and he goes there to earn a living. And he frequently asks me theological questions. And this week's question was, when somebody who is a believer dies with sin, what happens to them? And you know what the answer to the question is? No believer dies with sin. Why is that? Why is that? Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, I've taught this many times, and you know that there are two aspects to our salvation. One in which when we believe in Christ, we are, according to this, perfected forever. And if that were not so, 
then when you die at any given moment, there might be sin on you and you might not be prepared for heaven. But because Christ died and and when we believed in him, God said, I'm wiping away your sin and I'm putting the blood of Christ on you and when I look at you, I see the blood of Christ. Now we do sin on a daily basis and we need to confess that and we need to work at righteousness so that we grow in Christ day by day. But because the blood of Christ has been applied to us, if you happen to have an an unconfessed sin on the day you die, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be taken care of. And we don't have to walk through life wondering. Our hope is is not, oh, I hope so. Our hope is a certainty. And that's why the Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. The sacrifice has been made And if you have believed in Christ truly in your heart as your Savior, that sacrifice has been applied to you. And so we come here not to get salvation. We come here to remember the salvation we've been given. What a privilege is ours that we get to live in that confidence of God's forgiveness and we get to come here to say, oh, thank you for my salvation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The second joy that's pictured in the Lord's Supper is the joy of substitutionary suffering. And again, I would emphasize we aren't happy that Christ suffered, but we are happy at what is pictured in the bread. Look at verse 24. When he had given thanks, he he took the bread and broke it. And the bread, by the way, would have been like what we would call a cracker type of thing, kind of a little thin flat bread, so he would break the bread And he would say, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. The bread is to remind us of the body of Christ. The word broken, if you have the King James or say the New King James, the word broken, you see a little number by it and it says this word really was added in later manuscripts. And I I know that's a little scary sometimes to think that there are a few words scattered through the New Testament that got added when some guy was copying it to say, you know, I think this reads smoother. You know, Jesus broke the bread, and so when he talks about his body, it should be my body was broken for you. And I know we've heard those words over the years, but those words don't belong there for a very important theological reason. The Apostle John noted when the guards came to speed up the death of those on the cross, they were going to break their legs. Now, the reason that would speed up their death is because the way people died on the cross was by suffocating. They, they, in order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up, and if your legs were broken, you would go like this, and you wouldn't be able to breathe. And so their, their practice was to let them hang for a while and then break their legs, and that would speed up their death. And they came and looked at Jesus, and they, they got ready to break his legs, and they went, he's already gone. And they took the spear and poked it in to make sure. And, you know, I don't know why they didn't just break his legs anyway, except that the scripture says, not a bone of him shall be broken. Okay. And, and then Psalm 22 speaks about all of his bones being out of place. And now... I don't know if that's a poetic hyperbole, as in, you know, everything like this, or if all of his bones were out of place because of the tremendous suffering and difficulty he went through. We can certainly imagine that when they drove nails into his hands and into his feet, that as the nail would go in, it would push things out of the way. 
But what Jesus is emphasizing here is not the aspect of broken or whole. He's emphasizing my body went through suffering for you. It's built on this prophecy in Isaiah, the Old Testament. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Now, I know the whole passage is talking about his whole suffering and his death, but really this part of it here is talking about the, the, the terrible things that he suffered in his body. And so when he says, here's the bread... I want you to remember my body. What he's asking us also to remember is, I suffered so you didn't have to. Christ suffered so I don't have to suffer. The whole notion that somehow I could pay for my sins, I could go somewhere after death and spend some time being, being punished by God and pay for my sins, it's, it's totally unnecessary because uh, of what God tells us right here. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He was our substitute. He took the punishment for us. For scarcely for a righteous man would somebody die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't look down from heaven and say, now if you would just straighten up, then I'll save you. He said, you know, I really like you, but you've got a problem. Now you fix that problem, and then we're going to talk. No. While we were still sinners, while we were as far apart as enemies, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, in other words, if while we were enemies we were justified or made righteous by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. There's no wrath ahead for us because God punished him. And when we receive the bread, we remember, we remember that suffering of Christ. I'm never going to experience God's punishment on sin because Christ was punished for me. That truth is a cold drink on a hot day. That truth is a warm blanket on a cold night. It's the first bite of your favorite birthday cake. You go, mmm. I'm sad that Christ needed to suffer, but I'm happy that I don't have to. And when we receive the bread, we remember he suffered for me. He took my place. Thank the Lord. Number three, in the Lord's Supper is the joy of salvation purchased for us. And this has to do with his blood. Look at verse 25. In the same manner he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's interesting that the word wine is not used here. The word wine is not used in the Gospels, nor is the word juice or drink. It's the word cup. In, in both Matthew and Mark, later, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it in, in the kingdom in the future. But when he emphasizes, he says, this cup 
is the cup. And I understand that there was wine in it and so on, but the point is that he talks about the cup, the cup. What's the cup about? I think it's about this, this uh, little episode that you might remember. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. This is the night that he's gonna be arrested. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, asked James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed and he said, oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He said, this cup is the New Testament. And he talked about the cup. He, 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 he essentially summarized some of the things that would happen to him in the cup. And here we read, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with his people. The word covenant means a legally binding agreement. And he said, I will do these things. I want you to do those things. If you follow me, there will be these blessings. If you don't follow me, there will be these problems. And so on. He had an agreement with them. And he told them in later years, uh, the years as they drew closer to Christ, the prophets wrote and said, that there was going to be a new covenant God would make. And that new covenant is spoken of in the book of Hebrews. Um, and that new covenant is spoken of in Hebrews and uh, includes our salvation. What did Christ have to do to bring that new covenant in? He had to drink this cup. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cup that Jesus drank. He drank in that punishment of God, and the result of that punishment of God was what we read about in Hebrews 8. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now I'm not going to take time for the whole explaining of the relationship of Israel and the church and the new covenant and so on. But we get the benefit of the covenant. That's the, that's the short, short shrift on it. Jesus said... I am going to die. My blood is going to be shed. The shedding of blood is a way to speak of death. It's, it's, there wasn't something magical in the blood. There was something spiritual in the death of Christ and the payment for sin. I am going to die, and the result of that is God is going to enter into a new agreement with you in which God is going to be in your mind and in your heart. In the Old Testament, God was around and he was on people, but God never came in. The Holy Spirit never came in to dwell and all of the benefits of that until sins are forgiven. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper, we would think of the bread and realize I am spared from suffering by Christ. And then we think of the juice and realize I have new life going forward in Christ. And that juice references the payment that was made the signature on the covenant was the blood of Christ. 
And so now I know I have an assurance from God if I will believe in him, he will save me and change my life now and give me an eternity in heaven. He gives me the Holy Spirit to give me that confidence now. This week, uh, one of our, I don't know, lifelong members perhaps, Lillian Lancaster, had a major stroke and was moved to the hospice and is not expected to be with us a whole lot longer, but will be with the Lord and with her husband, with her other family members who have gone before. I went to see her when I heard she had gone into the hospice. I went right away because sometimes people are able to talk and share, and then they slip uh, into uh, sleep or coma, whatever it might be. But uh, she was already resting up for heaven by the time I got there. And so I just got the Bible out and read a passage of Scripture that ends with, we are well pleased to be absent from the body and present with the Lord And uh, I just enjoyed being there. Now, I don't enjoy death, don't get me wrong. But I know that the last time I saw her, which was two or three weeks ago, whenever it was, she was joyful. And you can tell a real saint, because when you go to talk to them, they ask about what's going on with you. What's going on with the church? What's happening at church? You know, smiling and their eyes were sparkling and and now she's sleeping, getting ready for heaven. And it was just such a privilege to be there and to know she's confident. And I, I'm confident too, but it's not because of me and it's not because of her. It's because of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Later in the week, I came back and her, her son and daughter-in-law were there. And we just, we smiled and we rejoiced and we looked forward to what the Lord has. That was a wonderful, peaceful moment because of Christ, because of the salvation he purchased for us. He didn't just suffer, but he accomplished something. He paid for our sin. He, he, he paid so that God could do what God wanted to do, which was to forgive us. A holy God can't forgive sin without a payment because then he wouldn't be holy. He can't close his eyes like a grandfather and say, get the candy anyway. I got no problem passing it out all the time. God's not that way. God's holy. He says, oh, I want you to come. I want you to have the blessings of heaven, but you have got a problem. And so I'm going to send my son, and he is going to pay with his own blood. And when he pays, I guarantee you that I will forgive your sin if you will believe in Christ. What a blessing is ours and we come to have that joy when we participate today. The last joy that I would share with you about the Lord's Supper from this passage is the joy of worthy participation. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
Now, I know this passage is stated in a negative way, and you know that I'm not afraid to preach about sin. But it's also saying something very positive, which is this. It's possible to be worthy to come into the presence of God and worship Christ for his sacrifice. Now, I, when we talk about, oh, I'm, I'm worthy to come in God's presence, that's a little bit like saying I wrote a book on humility. I'm an expert at that, you know. And yet, God is the one who says you can be worthy. It's not us somehow, you know, making the standard. It's God. And so we need to understand that there are a couple of truths that must be uh, real in our life. What makes us worthy in God's eyes? Worthiness, first of all, begins with faith in Christ. Uh, 1 John 3.23 says this is his commandment. This is God's commandment that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave his commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments, that person abides in him. And he in that person. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. God has commanded us to believe in Christ. Believing in Christ as Savior is a command, not a suggestion. God says you must believe in Christ, and if you listen to that and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor him in my own way. Then you become like Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? They both brought sacrifices to the Lord. Abel brought a blood sacrifice of the sheep. Cain brought the best of the fruits, and God said, that's not right. And he also said, you can be worthy. You go get a lamb, and you bring the right sacrifice. Cain's answer to that problem was a little different than God's, and he went away and sinned. We cannot bring God whatever we want, our own nobility, our own good deeds, our own esteem of ourselves. We come in Christ or we are unworthy. Jesus put it this way, quite simply, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let me put it to you this way. If my wife asks for her favorite white chocolate coconut raspberry rapture cake for her birthday, even if she asks by telling me that her co-workers were concerned that we would be at camp and I wouldn't be able to make that favorite cake for her, she just kind of slipped that in there. <laughs> and if I decide, I don't care what she likes, I'm going to bring my favorite cake then who do I love? I love myself. I'm not loving her. Okay? God says, come in faith. Believe in Christ. Your worthiness to eat this bread and drink this cup begins when you believe in Christ as your Savior. And then it is maintained, according to this command here, when we self-examine as a believer in Christ, then we do self-examination to make sure we are following God's way and we are coming with a sincere heart. 
In, earlier in this book, a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 3, there's a particular problem talked about and a principle enunciated. And the principle is what I want you to pick up on here. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but I had to speak to you as carnal or as to those who don't know the Lord, as to a baby in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still acting like people who don't know Christ or carnal. For where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The, you know, the specific problem, and if you've been here, we've talked about it, there was pride and division in the church, but the principle is much broader, and the principle is this. When you walk in sin, when you let sin exist in your life, you are not walking with the Lord. And when you come to this table to remember the price that Christ paid for your salvation, you need to come with a sincere heart saying, I am so thankful for what Christ did for me. But if you're harboring sin, you really don't care for Christ or his salvation. To be in sin when you come to the Lord's Supper, to honor the one who died to remove sin is an insult to the work he did to free you from sin. John MacArthur had a very uh, stunning analogy. He said, to trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the elements and the ceremony, it dishonors the one whose honor is celebrated. Self-examination that results in worthiness can only mean one thing. Any sin is confessed. If we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we can look at the duty of this passage when it says you need to be worthy. We can look at the duty and say, oh, I have to confess my sin so I can honor the Lord. Or we can look at the privilege and the blessedness of knowing that we're worthy to come into the very presence of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he put these words down in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the Holy of Holies, the, which in the Old Testament, the, the, the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God. It wasn't the very presence of God, but God made himself known there. But now we have boldness to come into the true holiest of holies, to come face to face with God by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is the veil of the temple was torn and so we can come right into the holiest that is through his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this is just saying, confess your sin. Be right with God. Be right with God because you have the privilege of coming right into the presence of God. 
Andrew, Andrea, 37 years ago, my wife and I were in the same boat you're in, not just approaching marriage, but living in two different places for the, for the whole summer before we got married. And it was before the internet, no email, no Facebook, no pictures transmitted. And it was before cell phones. We're talking dark, dark ages. <laughs> Every minute on the phone you had to pay for, can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah. So there were uh, cards and letters. I was an intern in a church over here, and she was at home over there. And, and uh, there were a few times when I could get over the hill to Wenatchee to see her, and that was a wonderful time. That was a wonderful, joyful time. And eventually the time came when we, when we were married and didn't have to part anymore. This act of worship is a unique opportunity to come into the presence of God. It's not the only time, but it's a unique way because Christ himself said, will you just take a minute and remember my suffering and remember that you don't have to suffer? And will you remember my shed blood and remember that you don't have to die? I died for you. And will you be thankful that you don't have to earn this and work and wonder and sweat and, and hope that you're good enough, but know that you're good enough in Christ. 